Well, good morning and welcome to Current. My name is David. We've been making our way through the book of Esther. Esther is our protagonist. She's the orphan Jew who ultimately becomes queen of Persia and uses her position, as we saw last week, to save her people, working for justice in society. Well, today we're going to focus on the antagonist, the villain, uh, the man named Haman. Haman is probably the clearest and most sustained case study in the Bible on all that it teaches on pride and humility and what can happen to us if pride goes unchecked. And so we're actually going to look at his account and the account of Mordecai here too, who was Esther's caregiver in her earlier part of her life, and see two things. First, we're going to see the danger of pride. And second, we're going to see the power of humility. And even though, even though this is a story of an account 2,500 years in the you know years ago, uh, we're going to see that this this has ancient lessons on pride and humility for today. It speaks very much into our hearts and our in our same human nature today. So we're going to look at the danger of pride and the power of humility. But first, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we have the. Um, opportunity to gather in this way, even though we can't be together physically, but we can we, we can be together digitally. So Father, would you bless this time? Would you give us each and all your spirit as we seek to learn more about who you are and who you call us to be through your word? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 5. But while you're doing that, uh, let me bring us up to speed. Last week, we left off in chapter 4, where Esther had resolved herself to go to the king, even though it would risk not only being queen in a life of luxury, but her life to petition on behalf of her people to save them. Haman had set things into motion to kill off all the Jews, and so Esther was resolved to go into the king, even though it was risking her life, to ask him to spare her people. And so in chapter 5, we see, at least in the first part, that king that the king allows her to speak to him. Well, she uses that occasion to say, okay, I want to throw a banquet for you, and I want you to bring Haman along to it, and, I, and I'll bring my request before you then. So we pick up now in Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Haman went out that day, happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, that's 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found, recorded there, that Mordecai had exposed Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has, done, has been done for him, his attendants answered. 
The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king, uh, when, when Haman entered, the king asked him what should be done for the man the king delights to honor. Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you, as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Here we see lessons on pride and humility. First, let's consider the danger of pride. And really, that's, of course, Haman here. He's just one arrogant dude. Look again at verses 10 and 11. He calls his friends and wife together and then just boasts about his vast wealth, about his many sons and how he's curried favor with the king. What is pride? C.S. Lewis, former atheist turned Christian, says that pride is, in a sense, self-absorption. He wrote at one point, pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. In other words, pride is making life all about you, who you are, what you've accomplished. In other words, what matters is what and how things happen to you. And there are two forms of pride. First, there's a superiority form of pride. That's the person who just exudes, I know best, and I'm, I'm better, and we've all been around people like that. That, of course, is Haman, as he just really wants everybody to respect him and just recognize his accomplishments. I mean, he has these major insecurities, clearly, and, and, and yet he's just driven by these calculations and comparisons to others. That's one form of pride. And then there's the other form of pride, the inferiority form of pride. This is the person who's just always down on themselves, who, who doesn't really like themselves, whether it's how they look or, or, or what others perceive about them. This person is very self-conscious, always beating themselves up. But Lewis says that this person is just as self-absorbed. This person is also making life all about them. They're just not coming out on top in those comparisons that they are making. Either form of pride lives from the notion the world revolves around me. That's what pride is. Here are some of the dangers we see in this text. Number one, it's easy to be blind to its roots in our life. Look, as the reader, we see what Haman is doing his boasts, his pride, and even as he's trying to tighten the noose around Mordecai's neck, 
that same noose is actually tightening around his own. Look again at verse 12. After boasting about his accomplishments and all that he's gained in terms of his favor with the king, he says, and that's not all. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Which, of course, the writer of Esther is using deep irony to show that it's at this banquet where he thinks he's going to be honored that actually his doom is going to be had. It's all going to come crashing down because of his wickedness, because of his pride. And he's just absolutely blind to it. St. Augustine and Jonathan Edwards both said that pride is essentially the sin underneath all sins. That it's the sin that just exists underneath all the other sins that the Bible talks about. So for instance, take the example of the sin in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It could be argued that they ate of, the, ate, ate of that fruit out of, out of the temptation of lust or out of the temptation of gluttony. But regardless, underneath, underneath that sin was them eating out of pride. In a narrative, like, who's God to say what we can and cannot do? Which really is the narrative underneath all sin that we do, the Bible teaches us not to do. It could be, you know, how could God say that we don't, you know, who's God to say we can or can't do this? Or who are they to say I can or can't do these things? It's really easy to be blind to the root of pride in our lives. I heard a preacher once say that pride is, of all the sins, just about one of the very few that, that is not so clear-cut and obvious. So for instance, so you take the example of adultery. No one ever in the, in the middle of the act of, of committing adultery says, whoa, wait a minute, you're not my wife. Or nobody you know, in the act of stealing and putting money in their pocket says, wait a minute, how's this money getting there? And yet pride is something hardly nobody ever says, oh yeah, you know, how, how'd I get so proud? Even as it is something so easy for us to identify in other people, I mean, it's just so clear, we can see it in other people, just easy. It's so hard for us to see in our own lives, the root of it in our own lives. The other danger of pride we see here is it's easy to be blind to its effects in our lives. Again, Haman here is going to the king and he's getting ready to request that Mordecai be impaled on this ridiculously high pole that he's, he's constructed only to find that King Xerxes has other plans. He didn't realize when he goes to the king that the king the night before had had a dream, couldn't, oh, excuse me, not had a dream, couldn't sleep, and had the, the book of annals of his reign read to him so that he could try to get back to sleep again. And the story came up, the account came up of Mordecai thwarting the assassination attempt on his life, and he found that he had never rewarded Mordecai for this. And so he's pondering, how do I, re how do I reward this guy for, for taking care of me in this way? And so when Haman comes in, really wanting to impale Mordecai, the king first asks, well, hey, how would you honor the one the king delights to honor? And Mordecai, because of he's so blind to his pride, doesn't even see what's happening, just goes, ooh, he's talking about me. He has to be talking about me. You know what you should do? You, to, for the one whom the king delights to honor, you should, you should clothe him in the king's robes. That's what you should do. And I could only imagine what Haman's face must have looked like when the king said, go and do all that you just said for Mordecai, the Jew, who was at the king's gates. You know, pride had absolutely blinded Haman to all these events happening in his life. But pride had also put him into this position to begin with. 
Again, if you look back at chapter 5, when he brought all his friends and and his wife together and boasted before them, and just making these huge boasts and claims, you would hope that one of those friends or his wife would have said, hey, you know, Mr. Big Shot, you know, stop getting too big for your britches here. Like, come back down to earth, big guy. But they don't do anything of the sort. If anything, they only stoke his pride. And you know what? We can often do this even unwittingly when we're proud to, to just bring people around us and only keep those around us who only ever affirm what we do or what we think or say. Haman is doing something that is showing us something here that we need to understand about the dangers of pride. And that is that it makes it really hard for us, for instance, to hear feedback. It makes it really hard for, for us to hear when others question our actions or find fault. In other words, pride can make it really hard for us to grow as people. Why is that? Well, we can easily have the narrative of, well, I'm always right. And when things don't go right, it's, it, the narrative is, well, that's because they were at fault or because those circumstances were wrong. And never the narrative is, oh, I played a part in that mess up. A clear place where pride can be destructive, of course, is in relationships, whether it's between two close roommates, friends, spouses, of course, say a fault is to be had, someone does it wrong, or say there's some miscommunication, but a, a disagreement or conflict arises, and what happens is it starts to spiral downward. Why? Because both parties just point and blame the other, and both parties just get defensive, and all it does is just spiral more and more downward. Ask any professional counselor and they'll tell you that that is never a recipe for healthy, thriving relationships. And yet, what is the source of the ever downward spiral that we can find ourselves in? But pride. There are real dangers to pride. And one of the scariest things about it of all is that it's easy to be blind to. It's easy to not see in our lives, whether it's roots, how it's taken hold, or the effects it's having in our lives. Friends, I tend to agree with what C.S. Lewis said when he said, when it comes to these matters, the best course of action is for each and every one of us, each and every one of us, to go ahead and just assume that we struggle with pride. Whether we can identify and put our finger on this situation or relationship or scenario where, where, you know, yeah, I guess we're proud. Even if we can't do that, just go ahead and assume that we struggle with pride because we do. An exercise that you could probably do even later today if you want is to think about all your relationships. Think, think about your closest relationships in your life and, and ask the question, what narrative do you bring into that relationship? Is it a narrative of, well, you're just right and, and they're wrong? Is it a narrative of, well, I'm just justified in treating them this way or that way? And then ask, what would it look like for you to approach that same relationship from the assumption that you you undoubtedly bring pride into that relationship. What would that do? What could that do to bring life and health into that relationship? Those are some of the dangers of pride. Now let's consider the power of humility. And of course, we see this in the character of Mordecai, which I just really love here in this account. I found this fascinating in my study this week because Mordecai is mentioned about 10 odd times in the text that we were read, but just about in every case, he's only referenced indirectly. He's not one of the characters like Haman or King Xerxes actively pushing the narrative forward, you know, actually pushing events forward. He's only mentioned indirectly. So say chapter 5, verse 9, Mordecai is mentioned, but only as the one Haman's mad at. 
And then in verse 14, Mordecai is mentioned, but as the one Haman wants to impale. And then in the first part of chapter 6, Mordecai is mentioned, but just as the one the king happened to read about. And then uh, verse 10, Mordecai is mentioned, but as the one the king wants to have honored. Which is really fascinating because here we see a picture in the Bible of somebody who is humble, not saying, oh, shucks, don't honor me. I'm not somebody who's special. That's not what we see. In fact, often C.S. Lewis will say is that's just self That's actually another form of pride, just that we just don't tend to notice or recognize. No, what we see here is a picture who isn't making any deal of themselves whatsoever. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride being self-absorption. Humility is making less of yourself. In fact, that's the famous, most famous quote of C.S. Lewis uh, of all in this regard, is when he said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Sometimes we think humility is the person saying, oh, shucks, or you shouldn't have. But really, when you leave someone who is humble, you're not thinking, oh, they're just a humble person, C.S. Lewis argues. He says, when you leave a humble person, you're really not thinking much about them at all. I, had a, I have a friend who is incredibly humble, and I never really realized it until I grew in my understanding of what humility really means in this regard. I, I realized that every time I hung out with him, I'd always leave realizing that I had done the vast majority of the talking. <laughs> And that's not because I went in, you know, to the conversation with my buddy with this agenda to just talk about myself or make things about me, at least hopefully not. And I also recognize that that was the case, not just with me, but whenever we're hanging out with, with other friends too, that they would be talking about themselves. I would be talking about myself in other, because my friend was constantly just asking questions of others. He only ever took genuine interest in others, trying to understand how they're doing, he, getting them to share about what's going on in their life. And at one point, I recognized this was happening, and I just stopped the flow of the conversation. I asked him, I said, hey, but how are you doing? And what was fascinating is he didn't say, oh, no, I'm, we're not here to talk about me. I want to talk about you. No. He just said, oh, hey, thanks for asking. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about this. I'm going through this. And then he got back to asking me about questions. Just incredible humility, just taking great interest in others. C.S. Lewis says that when you actually meet a humble person, you will leave not thinking about them being humble. You will think, just think of them as just being happy people who take genuine interest of others, not people who think, who care a lot about like what you think of them or, or make a much ado about themselves, but people who just are happy and take interest in others. Look, if there's a verse that encapsulates, I think, all that that's uh, taught here in this text, just kind of a verse that kind of brings it all together. It seems to me it's the verse that says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's how life works. Even as it is countercultural to us here in our society. I mean, I think as Americans living here in the Silicon Valley, we love the humble person. We, we recognize the, the virtue of humility. But the fact of the matter is we recognize that we have a narrative as a society, as a culture of, hey, you need to go get yours, get ahead, celebrate you. But that's not how life actually gets you ahead in many regards, which we'll talk about. So for instance, take a, kind of the classic example in my mind, Jim Collins' book, uh, Good to Great. 
If you haven't read it, it's a fascinating read. But in this book, Jim Collins and team take this, he's a social scientist. He just takes, you know, this idea of like researching uh, as, as best he can what separates great companies from kind of more mediocre companies. And he's he's an uninterested in abstract thought or conjecture. He just goes out and just like conducts surveys, interviews, and just collects data, turns it into measurements, and says, okay, what did we learn? And what he learns is, among many things, one, one of the things that separates great companies from good is they all have humble leaders. Isn't that interesting? Now, he said, of course, we can all think of examples of, of companies that have done well that don't have humble leaders. But in our study, we looked dozens, hundreds of companies, you know, of great companies. They were all led by humble people. If anything, the narcissistic type leaders out there are the, are the odd ones out. He's, they're led by humble people. people leaders who, when, when blame is, is, or fault is found in the company, take it upon themselves. Say, hey, I'm, even if they weren't directly involved, you know, that was my mess up. Or leaders, when praise is directed towards them, uh, point it to others. Oh, we've got a great team here. That was, that was the result of, of these people and th those teams doing that. And leaders who are not interested in like getting their own agenda, pushing like, you know, their own thinking about their own accomplishment, but leaders who are most interested in the mission of the company and the well-being of those on their teams. Fascinating. And when, when, when Jim Collins is writing about this book, it's really, it's really interesting. He's like, guys, can you believe this? It's like so opposite of what like we tend to think. We think we need to like put ourselves out there and go get ours. And yet it's the humble leaders. It's, it's the companies with humble leaders who are really driving things forward. Now, again, we can all think of examples of, of companies that have been led by people who are, you know, not humble, if anything, narcissistic. But, I mean, those examples are few and far between. And you know what? The Bible is not naive in that regard. It's not, it's not saying, hey, this is how it's only ever going to work. In fact, a number of the Psalms, uh, in a number of the Psalms, the psalmist cries out and says, God, how can you let the proud get ahead? The haughty in eyes, you know, move ahead and, and get, see this, see victory and accomplishment. But the conclusion always there is, but they will not always remain ahead. Especially when you consider in light of eternity. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, I just want to say real quickly too, I've had a number of Christians say, hey, when, you, when the Bible speaks about humility, does that mean I need to like lack all, I need to put my ambition aside and just, you know, be a humble, you know, cog in the machine. But look, we just talked about Jim Collins talking about, you know, high level leaders with great ambition living with great humility, but doing it from a motivation of caring for others. And, you know, for Christians, caring for God's work. So this is not, humility is not lacking ambition. It's, it's questioning why are we doing these things and what are we living for as we, as we love God and love our neighbor. Another example of the power of humility, of course, is in relationships. Remember I talked about earlier how conflict can just spiral down and down and get out of control quite easily? Um, it's really easy for that to happen. Well, what's the antidote? Um, I, what I'll regularly do with many couples who are uh, getting married at current is do some premarital counseling with them. And I always try to, to talk about uh, conflict resolution because surprise, surprise, you know, marriage is not devoid of, of conflict. And we need to prepare ourselves like when, when conflict does arise, what are some tools? How can we approach conflict? And there's a number of different things we can talk about. But the thing I always really emphasize is is this rule, if it were, and that is to own our own contribution in the conflict. 
If anything, I humbly think that that's probably the most important of all the things that we can do in resolving conflict, to own our own contribution. I had been highlighting this with one couple in particular, and I'll never forget, the groom-to-be said, oh my goodness, that makes perfect sense. Because whenever you're in an argument, it's never as if one is perfectly right and the other one is just completely wrong. And you just need to figure out who's who and then just, uh, you know, work it out. He said, no, it's it's always a percentage of, of, of each person in the part, you know, of the, in the discrete is, is wrong and right. And, and so there's always going to be something that you're wrong about. And so my job is to find what's wrong for me and own that. And if I can do that, that can help the relationship. That can help us in conflict. And, I, and as he was having that thought, I was like, man, if only we can all live by that. Humility is the antidote because when we begin to say, you know, in this downward spiral, you know, stop, I'm sorry, I need to own my contribution. I'm sorry for this part I've played, will you forgive me? Is the minute we start to turn things around and help life seep back into that relationship to to move things towards healing. And you know what's really fun, friends, is when we do that, it tends to allow the other, our spouse or friend or whatever, to do the same back. Now, it's not to say they will or even that they should. Well, hopefully they will. But even if they don't, our call is just to own what part we can. And that takes humility. But if you've never experienced that before, I mean, we can see that there are great dangers of pride, but there's also great beauty and power to humility. Now, what's the big takeaway in all of this? We've talked about some takeaways here and some different points of application that you can consider today and this week. But what's the big thought? I can tell you, friends, that it seems to me the big thought is not, okay, now go and be humble. (laughs) Because if we were to do that, we're just saying, okay, I just need to make it about... Let me just put it this way. Humility is not something that we can just on the outside decide, you know, I'm going to do. Or I just need to put effort into and then I'll be better. Because the, the scary thing is if we make humility into something well, we just need to go out and do, we, is the, the way we can easily morph humility into another form of pride. And that pride is called religious pride. Some of you are familiar with the Pharisees who thought themselves to be the most humble people of all, the religious leaders. But Jesus had more than a few things to say to them, including you, you guys are the opposite of what it means to be humble. And you're pointing people in the wrong direction. No, humility is not an outside thing that we just do. It's something that needs to happen on the inside. Something that needs to happen from the inside out. Well, how do we do that? What's the source of this change that we need? Actually, we see it here in this text that we just read. When Haman goes to the king and the king says, Hey, how how should I honor the one the king delights to honor? Haman says this thing that probably didn't, do much for us in our, with our modern ears. He says, you know what you should do? You should clothe the one that you honor with the king's robes. I mean, for us listening to that, it's like, really? That's, that's the highest thing you're going to aim for here? But you need to realize 2,500 years ago, that was a big deal. To be clothed in the robes of someone else, especially someone who's really significant, especially the king, let alone the king of the largest empire that ever existed in the world up until that point. He was asking what it meant to be robed in the king's clothing. It meant to be completely accepted and delighted by the king. There was no higher accomplishment back then. Haman wanted that more than anything. But even as we hear these words, we recognize that that was kind of a pathetic thing to shoot for, right? Because at the end of the day, King Xerxes himself was this really insecure, evil dude himself. 
And yet he shows something about our hearts and what we ultimately desire. You know, this is the gospel, friends, that God sent his son into the world to be humble. He could have come into this world with just total pride. And you know what? Complete, pure, and righteous pride. He could have said, I'm God. The world revolves around me. Bow the knee. But what did Jesus come to do? He came to bow his head and go to the cross and die for us for our sins, including our pride. And on every page of the book, Jesus was making life about the people that he encountered, healing and touching the leprous man, the lame, the blind, the outcast, giving them their, his time, ultimately dying for, for our sins, that we can be brought back into relationship with God, not because of anything we do, including the pride uh, and sin that we commit against God in that respect, He died for that all to bring us back into relationship. Why? So that he can, in a sense, clothe us with his robes. That's the gospel. When we put our faith in Jesus for what he has done for us, God robes us in the clothes of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, God the Father said, This is my son who I am well pleased. That is what he thinks of you when you put your faith in him because of what Jesus has done for you. He clothes you in the robes of the King of Kings. And so don't you see, friends, that if we are accepted and beloved and delighted in and honored by the King of Kings, in whom the world actually does revolve around, I mean, the universe revolves around, then we don't have to make this life about us getting ahead. There's, there's no more room for pride. What comparison is there to make? There's nothing that we can accomplish that's better than that or takes, or nothing we can't do that takes away from that. And so we can lose our pride beginning from the inside out when we see what Christ has done for us, that he has robed us in his clothes. And so this is what you can receive today. If you've never put your faith in him, this is the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ that you can receive. It says in, in, in John chapter 1, to all who believe, all who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. You can receive what he did for you on the cross today through humility by saying, you know what, God, I, I have been doing wrong. I, I can't do right. I need your help. I accept what you have done for me on the cross and dying for my sins. I receive you today. And if that's you, uh, we would love to come alongside you. Would you let us know? We'd love to give you resources or be a support to you in any way that we can be. And if you have received this, how can you live out of this humility that God has first made available to you? How can you look at areas in your life and just go ahead and assume that the, the pride exists and begin to say, you know what, if God loves me this much and he did that for me and I'm so loved and delighted and honored by him, I can begin to say, you know what, I, I do have pride in these areas. I do have, I can listen to feedback. How can we look at the areas of our life and see where there's pride? And then how can we live from the humility that he first offers us and begin to offer it so freely to others in our lives? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this ancient story on pride and humility and its relevance for our lives today. Father, would you please help us root out pride in our lives and would you help us live from the power of and beauty of humility that you offered for us and you made possible through what you did for us on the cross. Would you help us in each of these regards? And would you bless our relationships? We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's continue this time of worship now through song.